I ended the service last week by encouraging you all to stay awake. And we actually made the coffee extra strong that Sunday. We're going to be doing that uh, forever from now on. No, stay awake. Be prepared for the imminent, at any time, arrival of Jesus Christ. Our task, friends, is not to know when he will arrive, nor to try to do all the work he plans to do when he does arrive. Our task, rather, is to be prepared, since his arrival could come at any moment. Now, the passage we're going to look at this morning also relates to being prepared. We're jumping back, however, to the beginning of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And so I invite you to turn with me to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the beauty of this, the beginning of the Gospel, so I don't have to set it in its context. So the first eight verses of Mark's Gospel, let's read it. As you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to meet him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." You may be seated. And now, friends, let us pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the chance to gather together as believers so many thousands of years after the events written about in those passages Peter just read and the events of Mark chapter 1, we are still here, still waiting expectantly for you. Help us in our waiting to become more devoted, more trusting, more fervent in our activity to build your kingdom here on earth. As we read these God-breathed words together this morning, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. Make us more like you, Jesus, please. In Christ's name, amen. So the Gospel of Mark was written before any other New Testament Gospel. It's hard to remember that sometimes because it's placed second in the canonical order, but it is the first Gospel to have been written. And what that means is that what we read in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is in fact the beginning of the whole enterprise known as gospel writing in the ancient world. Other gospels begin quite differently. Matthew, for instance, begins with a genealogy, 
establishing the Abrahamic and Davidic descent of Jesus. Uh, Luke's gospel begins with a dedication. He says, It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And John begins just like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, etc., etc. In Mark, though, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we're thrown right into it. So verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word beginning here seems to have a double reference. It refers to the first 13 or 15 verses of Mark's gospel, but it also seems to refer to Mark's gospel as a whole. In other words, the gospel of Mark is not really a gospel, but rather the beginning of a gospel. Mark relates to his readers only the initial portion of the good news about Jesus, the portion that tells the story of his earthly life and ends with his resurrection. In the book of Acts, Luke says, In my first book, that is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote of all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. This applies to Mark, too. It's only the beginning. What this means, friends, is that there's more to the Gospel story than what we read in these pages. The Gospel narratives present the beginning of God's inbreaking kingdom a process that I would say stretches forward into the birth and life of the early church and beyond. So Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension is the beginning of the gospel story. The story of God's intervention into sinful reality and his redemption of human beings and all of creation. So that's what beginning means. Now, what about the word gospel? Gospel. The gospel, as a phrase, is uh, so worn in Christian circles that I fear that we've forgotten its original connotations. The word evangelion, gospel, simply means an announcement of something that is good. Now, in the Old Testament, this often referred to a military victory. And this, I think, accords well with what we've been talking about over the past two weeks. Remember in Psalm 110, God the Father invests royal and military authority in His Son, and the Son sits at the right hand through whom God will vanquish all of our enemies. Last week in Mark chapter 13, we saw the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans predicted and God's victory over Rome and such forces proclaimed. So for Mark to begin his gospel with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ functions as a kind of pronouncement from the battlefield. Victory, in other words, has been won. Understanding the gospel in this way helps us understand other portions of Mark's gospel since it seems that he interprets the ministry of Jesus as victory over demonic forces and evil spirits and their human agents. The word gospel is also related to royalty. 
And so the same word in Greek is often used in announcements about the birth of the Roman emperor. There's one famous inscription, the Prien inscription, which I think I've mentioned before, and it's about Augustus Caesar, and it reads, The birthday of the God began for the world the announcements of good news, the Gospels, that have gone forth because of him. So these words in Mark 1 are the first contributions to this new genre that is gospel literature. So every line that Mark writes sets a new standard for how these texts would be written later. Mark is presenting the story of Jesus as the beginning of God's royal victory over the forces of evil which hold the world in bondage. He portrays Jesus here in terms similar to the Roman emperor, whose life was thought to bring peace and deliverance to all under his reign. In verse 2, he goes on to say, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Good news, friends, implies newness, writes one scholar. He says, an announcement that has not been heard before. He goes on to say, it is important, though, for Mark to affirm that what happened in Jesus followed the plan of salvation as laid out by God in Scripture. And so what we see next in verses 2 and 3 is a cluster of citations from the Old Testament, which situate Mark's gospel in a Jewish scriptural context. The story of Jesus, which follows, then is cast as a continuation or a fulfillment of what we see written in the Hebrew scriptures. So after this phrase, as it is written, we get a combination of three verses from the Old Testament. Exodus 23.20, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. And we just heard all of those verses read. We don't actually get a quotation from Isaiah alone, as you'd expect here, but rather a kind of mashup of three different texts. Now, friends, if you take Mark to be literally introducing the exact source of the whole quotation, then some say that he was wrong because it's not from Isaiah. But I think Mark is doing something different by mentioning Isaiah here. He seems to be setting his story deliberately in the context of Isaiah's writings. Even though he quotes from some other books, Mark wants us to hear his gospel, especially in the light of Isaiah's prophecy. If you read the rest of Mark's gospel, you'll see that Mark has a special affection for Isaiah. He's the only Old Testament author mentioned by name in the Gospel of Mark. And if you keep reading the beginning, these first 15 verses, you'll see several other allusions to Isaiah. But let me just go through these three citations, and they're not exact quotations. Some are, but some are allusions. Uh, So let's begin with Exodus 23.20. That verse reads, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So having just heard Exodus 23, 20 through 25, 
And having spent some time in Exodus this summer, we know that this verse is referring to Israel's initial entry into the land of Canaan after wandering in the wilderness. In this passage, God commands the Israelites to keep covenant by following Torah. And he promises to conquer the Canaanites for them and bring them safely into the land if, if they remain faithful. For Mark to quote this verse at the beginning of his gospel is at the least to set the story of Jesus right next to the story of Israel entering the land. At the most, though, it's to cast the story of Jesus as a kind of new entry into a new promised land. For the past several hundred years, for the people of Israel at this point, like their ancestors, they'd been wandering in a kind of spiritual and political wilderness. So Jesus, in this sense, would function like a new Joshua. And friends, their names in Greek are exactly the same. Jesus. The arrival of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, would signify a new entry into a new promised land. With God promising to vanquish the powers of evil which currently occupy that land. Now, I think this makes perfect sense as you read later about the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, which becomes a kind of Jordan River crossing, just like the first one. And this marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry of conquest over the demons and evil spirits which occupy God's people and his land, just like in Joshua. The next verse that is cited is indeed from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40, of course, doesn't refer to Israel's initial entry into the promised land, but rather it refers to their return to that land many, many years later. After a king had been established in Israel, making them like every other nation, much trouble ensued for God's people. The Assyrians invaded northern Israel in 722 BC and carried many off as captives. And then in 586, Babylon invades Jerusalem and carried many off into exile. Isaiah 40 is written in the midst of this exile. And it forecasts God's deliverance of his people and their return to the promised land after exile. So to quote from Isaiah 40 at this point means that Jesus' arrival brings exile to an end. But wait, Israel hasn't been exiled for nearly 500 years, right? Well, I think like the interpretation of Exodus and the re-entry into a new promised land, you could argue that Israel has been in exile, spiritual exile, for at least several hundred years. Many look at the gap between Malachi and Matthew 
between the Old Testament and the New, and refer to this as a period of silence from God. Now, let me just say, if you were to read the Apocrypha, you'd see that it was not silent. A lot was happening. Uh, But it is true that prophecy had been stilled for a considerable amount of time during that period. But with the arrival of Jesus, and even John the Baptist, prophecy, and that is communication between Yahweh and His people, prophecy was effectively reopened. The people then were living in a kind of spiritual exile away from God, away from the land. And now with John the Baptist and soon Jesus, that exile, friends, would end. Well, finally, we get the third verse, the famous Malachi 3.1, which reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. But as we just heard, the text goes on to say, But who can endure the, the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This messenger in Malachi, whom Jews believed to be Elijah returning from heaven, would precede God's arrival. The God who would bring judgment on those breaking the covenant. I will draw near to you for judgment, it says. I will be a swift witness against the adulterers, those who swear falsely, who oppress the hired worker in his wages, those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is exactly the sort of behavior that Jesus criticizes among the Pharisees and Sadducees. The people of Israel, then, the leaders, most obviously, had turned away from Yahweh. And they needed, they needed to repent. If the Lord were to arrive with His people still engaged in these kinds of practices, it says, I will come and strike the land with utter destruction. As we discussed, the task of God's people is to be prepared for his imminent arrival. And so John the Baptist, this new Elijah, is meant to prepare the hearts of God's people to help them turn back to Yahweh so that when he does arrive in Christ, they're not cursed, but rather blessed. So verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sins. It's no wonder, friends, that John's activity featured baptism and repentance. As you may know, uh, priests in ancient Israelite religion, and I quote here, often washed themselves before taking part in sacrifices. And ordinary Israelites even did likewise if they contracted some sort of ritual impurity. Now, this sort of washing was even extended to Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who, according to one scholar, purged themselves of their former life, think of baptism, through immersion in a ritual bath, end quote. So baptism, or dipping, that's what it really means, was a common cleansing ritual. 
And it would signify judgment, the waters of judgment upon sin, and purification unto new life. Mention of the wilderness here, I think, is meant to connect John's ministry with that of Moses and Elijah, who both had experiences with water in the wilderness. We just read some stories in Exodus where Moses parts the Red Sea. He causes water to come out of a rock and to become sweet in the wilderness. And he thus hydrates, renews the people who are wandering in the desert. Elijah also causes a three-year drought in northern Israel. And he is hydrated in the wilderness through a stream. And friends, he ascends to heaven at the Jordan River, which is exactly where this is taking place. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, it says, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mentioning all of Judea, all of Jerusalem is, of course, a figure of speech. This is literature. We're not to take that literally. It's not that every single human being came out. But it does suggest widespread renewal, revival. That's similar to what we see in Exodus and 1 Kings. And John, verse 6, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. As if the echoes with Elijah weren't loud enough, we get this description of John, which is taken almost exactly from 2 Kings chapter 1. In that text, the messengers of this injured king, Ahaziah, they say, there came a man to meet us on the way. And the king said, what kind of man was he? And they answered, he wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, of course, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. Now, in that story, after the king sends several bands of 50 to meet Elijah, one by one, the bands are consumed by the fire of God's judgment. So Elijah, in 2 Kings, is associated with prophetic renewal, with conquering the the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, yes, but he's also associated with judgment and condemnation. Friends, Mark wants us to see John the Baptist in the very same light. Verse 7 says that he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John has been sent to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his paths straight, And so his ministry is not an end in itself, but is rather a means to a greater end. Through his preaching and his offer of baptism, he helps these corrupt, unfaithful Israelites turn back to God before God arrives on the scene in the person of Christ. If they are found unfaithful or corrupt when God does arrive, They'll be cursed and judged like all the other nations that do not fear the Lord. But if they are found faithful, I don't mean perfect, but committed to the covenant, they will be blessed 
beyond measure at God's arrival in Christ. Lastly, in verse 8, he continues, I have baptized you with water, but he, the coming one, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The he is, of course, Messiah Jesus, whether or not John knows it yet. And for Jesus to immerse the people in the Holy Spirit, I think, is to fulfill the words of Ezekiel 36. In that passage, it says that I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The Holy Spirit is also in the Old Testament frequently connected to prophetic power. So the capacity to receive visions from God which disclose His heavenly perspective. And so in this silent context in which Israel hasn't had a real prophet in centuries, John the Baptist proclaims an era in which all will be prophets. And at this point, I can't help but think of Joel chapter 2 and Peter's sermon at Pentecost where he says, It shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, etc. To sum up these verses, friends, with which Mark begins his gospel, the arrival of Jesus preceded by John's ministry, I think, will lead to three things. Three things. Re-entry into a new spiritual promised land. Judgment upon all the forces of evil which hold God's people in bondage. And a widespread, intimate connection between God and His covenant people. In the opening words of his gospel, Mark thus proclaims Jesus as a better emperor, as a new Joshua, and as a source of prophetic renewal. All in eight verses, friends. (laughs) As Christians reading Mark 1 today, 2,000 years later, How ought we to receive this pregnant passage? Thinking about our position in the year to Advent, what does this text mean for us? Well, friends, perhaps like the Israelites, you have experienced a long season of silence, drought, darkness, exile. Perhaps you have felt far from the promised land, in the wilderness, or away in Babylon. Maybe you have felt pulled into the corrupt, superficial forms of thinking and living that pulled many of Israel's leaders into its orbit. Maybe you, just like the many from Judea and Jerusalem, maybe you need help from someone like John to turn back to the living God before He arrives in the person of Christ this Christmas. 
Friends, if God returns and finds us asleep, that is, unfaithful to the covenant, disconnected to Him, then judgment will fall upon us. It will. God is committed to ridding our world of evil, sin, and oppression. And if we are engaged in those things, it means judgment for us, even us. This morning, like John in the wilderness, forgot to wear my camel sweater, I encourage you to return to God, to recommit to the Lord. I encourage you to renew your commitment to Him, to let your hearts be prepared this season so that when Christ arrives, you are ready. Friends, if you are ready, awake at the gate and prepared to welcome home your master, his arrival will bring utter joy, utter blessing. So this morning I urge you to repent, which means just turn back to God. Turn to him. Don't wait until it's too late, friends. Face your sin, turn to Christ, and may his arrival be news of great joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy in giving us chance after chance after chance to turn from our evil ways, to repent, to be dipped again, cleansed. You, for some reason, want to be in fellowship with us, your children. Even though we've turned away from you so many times, may this be a season in which you draw us all to you. Those of us who have claimed to be Christians for years, those who've never made such claims, Draw us to you, Lord. Cleanse us. Help us to trust in Christ so that when you arrive, and you will arrive, it is cause for celebration and joy. Be glorified through our worship, our offerings of praise this morning. Make us more like you, please. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.